Does it ever strike you as weird that the wealthiest 2,000 people in the world own more wealth than the poorest 4.5 billion, and that's just accepted as normal? Or how about the fact that we're only a few years away from an irreversible tipping point for total climate collapse, and our leaders just act like that's not an emergency? We're constantly told that these things are just facts of life, that they either can't be changed, or if they can, only by elite saviors like rich CEOs and politicians. And most importantly, they tell us that all these problems are just bugs, not features of the capitalist system. Running against this whole line of pessimistic, powerless, and cynical thinking is a new document called A Plan to Save the Planet that's starting to circulate worldwide. It's the product of discussion from 25 left-wing and anti-imperialist research institutes from across the globe, spearheaded by the Tricontinental Institution for Social Research. Vijay Prashad, Tricon's director, explained this ambitious endeavor and if it could ever become a reality. So this dossier analyzes the many crises we're living through right now and proposes a number of solutions. Can you describe the extent and severity of the crisis we're facing? And do the plans in place right now stack up against the scale of the crisis? There is a severe crisis. We know there's a crisis because well, you don't have to take my word for it. Look at the United Nations documents. United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization suggests that the number of people who are going hungry right now is up to 2.7 to 3 billion. 3 billion. The estimate of the number of people on the planet is 7.9 billion. So we're saying roughly one in three people is hungry. That's a pretty big crisis if one in three people is hungry. Um, looking at other figures, we, we looked in and saw that at the current rate of vaccination, the country of Burundi, the people of Burundi will get to 70% vaccination by the year 2100. Yes, that's 2100. Um, that's a pretty severe crisis. We have what we call a medical apartheid. We have a food apartheid. Um, and, you know, if we're looking at these things seriously, um, the price of borrowing for poorer countries has gone up by 10% during the pandemic. They're already struggling with debt, and then you increase the borrowing price by 10%. That's a money apartheid. I mean, I could go on. There are cascading crises. Um, this is something that the World Economic Forum, uh, which is you know a forum of business people, it recognizes as a serious issue. Um, I think the UN is very much, uh, you know, seized by the severity of the crisis. It's what it is. One in three people can't eat. The dossier talks about how the existing institutions acknowledge these problems to some degree, like the World Economic Forum that you mentioned, but that these solutions they propose, like this so-called Great Reset, are really incapable of solving these problems. Can you talk about the conventional wisdom regarding why things like poverty, climate change, and war exist? And where does the dossier diverge from these views? Well, the most important thing is that organizations like the World Economic Forum or liberal economists, you know, that are sprinkled across um, the academic world globally, uh, people generally look at these crises separately. You look at the food crisis separately. You might say, well, there's a problem with the supply chain. There's a problem with um, overpopulation. There's a problem with the fact that uh, people who are hungry just don't have enough money in their hands and so on. Um, you know, they look at that crisis over there. 
Then there'd be somebody else looking at the medical crisis and saying, well, here, you know, it's a problem. If they're radical uh, in one way or the other, they might say there's a problem with the patent laws. Um, or they might say there's hoarding going on. You know, they'd have a particular critique of what's going on in this crisis or that crisis or the other crisis. But what we're not able to see from many of these critical voices is the totality, the sum totality of the problem. You see, the World Economic Forum and then the Bank of London, they created a new group with the Vatican. Uh, it's a very strange alliance called the Council for Inclusive Capitalism. So the Council for Inclusive Capitalism, World Economic Forum, they have a general orientation um, of the problem. You know, Council for Inclusive Capitalism, because the Vatican is involved, says that the problem is social inequality. It's true. Social inequality, the great gaps between rich and poor, accessibility a problem. But social inequality isn't the author of the problem. It itself is a symptom of a problem. World Economic Forum also acknowledges that social inequality is a big issue. But again, social inequality is a symptom of the problem. It's not the author. Where we differ is we are interested in who the author of the problem is. The author of, a prob of the problem is a global system which allows very small number of people to basically monopolize power, to monopolize privilege and to monopolize property. These three things, power, privilege and property, allow a very small minority of people to enjoy all the gains of the very productive system uh, that's you know there that produces enormous amount of commodities and so on. But because a small number of people control the system, there are enormous problems in the system. There are distortions of, of a great many uh, kind. One is that these small number of people just refuse to pay tax. We have as an indicator of that $37 trillion sitting in illicit tax havens around the world. They just refuse to pay tax. Not only do they refuse to pay tax, they take a lot of the earnings that they make and put them into non-productive financial instruments. So they're just taking resources out of society. Um, that creates a problem in the, in, in the world because you don't have resources to create you know, robust education systems. You don't have resources to create health systems. You don't have resources to create you know, economic life, cooperative economic life where people can you know, lead dignified lives, have decent work and so on. And so the author of the problem isn't social inequality, you know, which is, as I said, a symptom. The author of the problem is a system that allows small number of people to monopolize the gains and then remove the gains from society. They, they, we know that, that the wealth of society is socially produced, but they privately accumulate those those gains, that wealth, and put them elsewhere. And the system that generates the social wealth is itself highly unequal. You know, there's a, a lot of um, inequities in the decision making in, in the productive sector and so on. So we have come up with a plan, this great plan to save the planet, which tries to address these uh, the inequities of power, privilege, and property. The document also describes an increasingly common trend that we see in the modern production process, which the document calls Uberization. And I really love this term of Uberization. Can you explain to our audience what that means and where do you see Uberization taking place in the world? 
Well, when you, if you know how the Uber driver works, it, the Uber driver's predicament is increasingly becoming the predicament of workers around the world. The Uber driver essentially is an isolated worker. It puts his or her labor into um, the marketplace. Their labor is essentially disciplined by an app. Uh, they don't even actually see a physical supervisor or see their other, um, you know, their, their colleagues, their co-workers and so on. They are uh, canalized through the app. Uh, they are totally alienated from other workers and completely alienated even from the bosses. They don't know who their bosses are. You know, they are looking at an app and so on. You know, well, that's a very particular and extreme form of labor disciplining, you know, where you are also being trained to believe that you are a self-employed person you're not even yourself you're not self-employed you're employed by an app essentially uh, which behind it has a massive corporation which is using your labor and as you know culturally convinced you you're not a worker you're a gig you know you're in the gig economy or, or, or there's all kinds of terms for that actually you're just a worker rather than seeing a physical supervisor you're looking at the app well, this is happening in fields very far from you know taxi driving um, in india for instance one of the reasons that the farmers were on a year-long strike against the government's three laws uh, that reshaped the marketplace is effectively they were going to be uberized you know small farmers or medium farmers or even landless workers were going to be working for a marketplace um, that no longer, you know, existed. It was going to be a kind of app-oriented marketplace and they were going to be Uberized. They were going to become Uber drivers, but here planting seeds, managing the crop, harvesting, and then essentially selling it at a pretty anonymous marketplace. Um, this is happening in so many professions where people are basically being alienated uh, even from a workplace. Um, you know, the, the companies have used the pandemic effectively uh, and the lockdowns particularly as a great way to school people to use online shopping, you know, to substitute for going to places. So I don't know how many people will actually return to going to markets to buy things when they might have gotten used to the so-called convenience of buying online. Well, buying online means that labor can be increasingly Uberized. You know, you, you can have a warehouse rather than a, a grocery shop. And the there are drivers who bring the goods from the warehouse to your house. Uh, and that's it. And those drivers essentially function like Uber drivers. People working in warehouses are also Uberized. You know, you don't need supervisors. You have all kinds of electronic surveillance and so on. There's a way in which work is becoming even more difficult to organize you know to create unions and so on and so uberization isn't just the degradation of working conditions it's also taking away from people the possibility of political action at the workplace one of the more consistent themes here is that most of the wealth in high-income countries is really just wealth that's taken from poor countries so what would you tell people in these high-income countries who want to see an end to this exploitation? You know, in the 1970s, the head of the Bank of America, who later became the head of the World Bank, he said basically that if we don't deal with the fact of social inequality, uh, our houses are going to be burnt down. You know, in other words, uh, he said basically social inequality is a real fact. Uh, it's going to create distress. It's going to get people angry. 
and they're going to come and they're going to protest in front of your gate. So why not ameliorate the problem? You know, that was what the head of the Bank of America said in the 1970s. Okay, fine. Today, the situation is even graver. You know, I, I, I just mentioned that a country like Burundi is not going to get 70% of the population vaccinated uh, before 2100. And I can bet you that means that new variants of this uh, COVID-19 will be produced in places where vaccination rates are low. Um, it's in everybody's interest globally to deal with these problems, these pressing problems. Yes, there's an advantage uh, for people of certain backgrounds to live in place like the United States. Certainly it's an advantage if you have advanced degrees and so on, you know, you're able to command a good wage. But people know that even inside places like the United States, there's deep social distress. Rather than, you know, wrapping yourself in the flag and thinking the flag is going to improve your working conditions, improve your way of life, might consider wrapping yourself in the warm embrace of international solidarity, you know, and thinking about the fact that your working conditions are as degraded as they are for people in Malaysia or in, you know, in, 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 in Zambia and so on. Um, it might be a good idea not to fantasize that somehow the fact that the, you know, the, the absolute wealth in a country like the United States is high that doesn't mean that your wealth is near high or that you can access that wealth. You know, a poor person living in New Mexico has as much chance of accessing the wealth of Wall Street uh, as, as a copper miner in Zambia. Um, the copper miner in Zambia is equally uh, alienated from the, um, the, from the canyons of high finance as the, you know, the, the kind of farmers that are there in India or as the you know low-wage mall worker in California. They're all alienated from the canyons of high finance. It's just that there's an illusion created through a kind of nationalism that you know if you're a US citizen, you can access the wealth of the United States. That's just not gonna happen. The document also talks about the role the rise of China has played in not only scapegoating the crises of capitalism, but also accelerating them in some ways. Can you talk a little bit about that? You see, when China uh, opened up in the reform era in 1978, it was celebrated in the West because people said, well, look, now we'll get to take advantage of highly skilled, uh, well-fed, um, you know, educated, well-fed Chinese workers. And the Chinese built these, you know, areas like in Shenzhen, in, um, uh, you know, these big, you know, work, uh, you know, free trade kind of areas and so on. And Western companies flocked there. Uh, what the Chinese did, of course, was they said, look, you can come in and, and use highly skilled, well-fed Chinese workers, uh, but you have to transfer science and you have to transfer technology. And that's what these companies ended up doing. They were so excited to take advantage of highly skilled um, Chinese workers who were much cheaper than, say, hiring workers in Germany and so on. They were so excited. I mean, German companies flocked to Wuhan province, the epicenter of, uh, you know, where the COVID was first spotted um, in Hubei province. Uh, you know, German companies flocked there, French companies, US companies and so on. That was all okay. But then in the last 10 or 12 years, Chinese firms started to advance, particularly in telecommunications, in robotics, in high-speed rail and so on like Huawei was one such firm, ZTE another, and so on and so forth. That was objectionable because now Chinese companies were frontally challenging 
Western firms. And so, you know, what you got was just before the pandemic, you started to see um, this trade war pick up. Uh, Obama from the United States led the trade war against China. It was exacerbated by Donald Trump, continued now by Joe Biden and so on. So this whole idea of pushing the trade uh, question in the forefront before the pandemic, that just deepened during the pandemic. It was easier for Western governments to say, uh, China is to blame than to actually acknowledge the fact that, um, you know, the rigors of, of advanced capitalism, Uberized capitalism is degrading the life living standards of people in Western countries. You know, it's, it's not it's not because of the advancement of Chinese robotics um, that, you know, taxi drivers in New York are struggling against Uber drivers. That's a function of um, the advancement of capitalism is a function of the fact that those who own property, who control privilege and power, um, have the ability to shape uh, the advances of technology to benefit them against labor. That's why you have, you know, the Uber drivers suddenly appear. It's hugely profitable for Uber as a company, but it degrades the working condition of drivers and wipes out you know, taxi drivers and their medallions and so on. Um, it's not the Chinese economy that has wiped out the medallions cost in New York City. It's the emergence of Uber. And it's not the Uber drivers. It's Uber as a corporation that does that. So it was very easy to just turn around and say, let's blame China for all our problems. Let's not engage with the fact that advanced capitalism has essentially degraded, um, you know, working conditions, has created lots of structural unemployment, lots of people not needed because productivity has increased and therefore has created distress in the society. There is real distress in the society, but that distress isn't created by, you know, China's technological and scientific advances. That distress is created by the nature of capitalist power and who owns everything. You know, that's where the distress should be laid. It should be laid at their door and not at the door of some abstraction called China. A lot of people might take a look at a document like this and say, well, you know, that sounds nice, but there's no way this is going to happen. What would you say to these people? And is there hope for the future? Well, I mean, of course, there's hope for the future. You know, when the Modi government in India passed the three farm laws in 2020, um, people said that's a fait accompli. You know, they've passed these three farm laws. Farm in, farming in India is going to be Uberized. And then on the 26th of November, tens of thousands of, of farmers gathered around Delhi. They stayed for an entire year. They were unrelenting. Hundreds of thousands of farmers joined them. People came from all across India to sit with them at these protest sites around Delhi. And the Indian government had to withdraw the farm bill. I mean, I think that's the most significant mass action that I've seen in my life. You know, this incredible up upsurge of, of, of farmers in India. I don't see why this is not possible all around the world. You know, this thing we're calling a plan to save the planet, this is not a text that I expect, oh, will tomorrow be accepted by anybody? We want this text to be picked up by our movements, to be read by the movements, to be campaigned with, taken to the homes of workers, of people who are feeling desolate. And then if we have a movement behind this plan, why can't we do it? We can do anything we want if we have the people with us, anything. The issue is we have to go and build the people into a real political force. That may not be there in many countries, but it can happen. 
it must happen it has to happen 